G'day, I'm Martin Isles. On this week's edition of The Truth of It, we talk the Australia Day date controversy, pill testing, the heatwave, Asya Bibi, and photographer Jason Tay. Welcome to The Truth of It, ACL's weekly newscast on politics and current events, and you might ask, why? Well, to cut through the fake news and bring you what it says on the tin, which is the truth of it. And today we find ourselves on the other side of Australia Day celebrations, and therefore on the other side of the inevitable controversy about whether or not we should change the date. But you know, now being on the other side and a few days have passed, really in reflection I see that this was the tale of two different worlds. There was the first world, which was the world that we saw before Australia Day in the mainstream media, from some politicians, from activists. It's all they talked about. Is Australia Day on the right date? Should we be proud to celebrate Australia Day? Should we be proud to celebrate Australia and its history? Uh, the opinions and the pontifications of these people were endless and they were everywhere in our faces. But you know, I then saw another world. And the other world that I saw was on the date of Australia Day, and it was the world of ordinary Australians. Thousands upon thousands of them. Australians and their families in their backyards, in their front yards, covering every park and picnic spot and public place in the city, firing up all the barbecues that they could find, checking out Australia Day fireworks, and joining what were actually quite common community get-togethers all throughout the suburbs. They were all out and about. They were all celebrating being Australian. And so it turns out that the ordinary Australians, on the whole, appear very happy to celebrate Australia, despite what they're increasingly being told, especially in the lead-up to Australia Day, by the first group that I just described. And this is kind of confirmed, I was very interested to see this, by a survey or a poll run by the Institute of Public Affairs, which showed that 75% of Australians want to keep the date of Australia Day the same, and the big surprise was that only 8% of young people actually want to change the date. Um, also, they surveyed another question, which was whether or not Australians are proud to be Australian. And 87% said yes. Only 3% said no. 76% said that Australia had a history to be proud of. And only 11% said that we don't. And yet there was that phenomenon I talked about where there's a, an activist mob that is, that is, that is uh, painting a different story. Uh, crowds of political activists, thousands mounted protests in all the capital cities and there was even a banner 25 metres long unfurled on Westminster Bridge in London saying, abolish Australia Day. So what does all that tell us? Well, it tells me this. It tells me why the mainstream media, activist academics, fringe political movements, why they're so busy. Because they have a big project on their hands. Because, you know, in order to radically change any society, in order to re-engineer the fundamentals and the foundations of a society and make people think differently, you actually have to convince them, convince the people that their society is terrible. And it needs to be forgotten. Worse, it actually needs to be dismantled. And this is another one of those big ideas that's banging around out there as a result of sort of the cultural soup that we're entering into, which is sort of postmodern, sort of neo-Marxist. It's this idea that we need to attack and destroy Western civilization. We need to turn the hearts of the people against their own country, against their own 
culture, we need to get it dismantled. Um, it's a trend that's playing out in a myriad of ways, not just Australia Day, right across the Western world. For example, just the other day, the Guardian newspaper reported that one of the top, ten, top trends over the next decade in academia will be the decolonization, they call it, of education. Uh, what does that mean? Well, it means the introduction of a whole lot of politically correct stuff, but also they say that it is a recognition that what is considered worthwhile knowledge is changing. Why? because Western supremacy is no longer taken as a given. Um, now, that sounds very meek and mild in the way they've put it, but actually what it means is that Western civilization, Western culture is put to one side at the, in, instead to promote others. Um, it tells us, you see, um, that the target here is not really Australia Day. The target here is our attitude to Australia itself, to Western culture itself. Uh, if we are, see, genocidal, patriarchal, rights-abusing, hegemonic, money-loving, oppressive, climate-changing, colonialistic bastions of hate and prejudice run by a primarily power-drunk cable of white men who are saturated in religion and therefore child abuse, well, half of their job is done. The past is painted as something horrific. The culture that produced us is awful. Uh, and therefore, the way is open for something else to be taught instead, for a different culture to be ushered in. It turns out that Australia Day uh, presents two things for, these, for people who think this way. Firstly, it's a great bulwark standing in the way of the program. But also, because people love it, people love Australia, people are still proud of Australia. But also, it is a fantastic platform a really good platform for getting people to associate Australia Day with all of that stuff that I just described. It's a great PR opportunity to use that event as a mouthpiece, as a foghorn for ideas about the evils of Western civilization. So it is no wonder they are so busy because this kind of thinking is already creeping into so many areas of our culture. But Australia Day is an opportunity uh, and Australia Day is perhaps something that hasn't been attacked enough in their minds up until this point to make that association between Australia and an evil, oppressive culture. But here's a really important point that I think we need to note. Um, I'm not going to say that the past is perfect. I'm not going to say Western culture is perfect. But I'm going to say this. We must recognise that one of the parts of that massive deconstruction project is the destruction of Christianity which is seen uh, by the postmodernists as part and parcel of Western Civ. Um, you see, that was the great project, that is the ongoing great project of the postmodern thinkers. Um, and postmodernism has heavily influenced particularly our education curricula, particularly our universities and institutions. Um, it is the attacking of the deconstruction of Western civilization, um, including Christianity. Uh, it was Jacques Derrida, one of the biggest and most prominent postmodern thinkers of the last uh, hundred or so years. What did he say? Well, he said one of the problems with the West is this. It is Logos-centric. Its worldview is Logos-centric. And those of you who are Christians know exactly what I mean when I say Logos. Of course, it is the Logos of John's Gospel, chapter 1. It is the fact that it is Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh. It is He that must go.
second on the agenda today is uh, pill testing. Let me just read some names. Joseph Pham, 23. Diana Nguyen, 21. Callum Brosnan, 19. Josh Tam, 22. Alex Ross King, 19. Five people dead in New South Wales alone at music festivals since September. You know, it was just over the Australia Day long weekend itself that, again, in New South Wales alone, 25 people aged between 16 and 25 were hospitalised, with 14 requiring uh, what was described as extremely high-level care. Uh, without that care, they could have died or suffered permanent brain damage. The New South Wales government reports that they spent half a million dollars on healthcare teams at three festivals over the Australia Day long weekend. And the Australian newspaper ran reports about the Hardcore Till I Die festival, uh, uh, which talked of uh, drug, carried pictures of drug paraphernalia littered throughout the venue uh, and carried testimonials and stories from cleaners and so forth uh, who told of the rampant drug abuse that was taking place there. So what's the solution? What is to be done about it? Uh, well, as we know, the conversation in recent weeks has turned to pill testing to say, well, what we should do is we should take the drugs that are causing all this havoc and we should take the drugs that the kids are that the kids are consuming and that these festivals seem to be so primarily centred around and we should test them before they take them. Don't criminalise, don't punish people, uh, release the burden of responsibility to some degree, don't make them make that call about whether they put themselves in danger. Uh, instead, test the drugs and then let them make those decisions instead. Well, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me, and I know there's a lot of arguments around why that could or could not be a bad thing, but let me outline some of the problems. The first problem is this. A drug which clears a test is not safe. Um, there's two reasons for that. Uh, for one, they're not homogeneously mixed. So uh, ingredients don't appear throughout the drug. So the tested portion may not be representative. Uh, or the varying concentrations of ingredients throughout the drug change. Um, the sec and and for, for two, the, the second part of that is this, that drugs actually have idiosyncratic effects uh, and can kill even when they are pure. Now, uh, the father of a 15-year-old girl called Anna Wood, who died in such circumstances, came out and said, well, my daughter wouldn't have been saved by drug testing because she took a pure substance. But because of the idiosyncratic effects of what are inherently dangerous drugs, she died. So that's the first problem. Uh, a drug which clears the test isn't safe. Uh, secondly, we need to just come back to basics and say, look, drugs utterly destroy. Drugs ruin lives for good. Drugs uh, destroy families. People may know, you may know of a family that's affected by drug abuse. You may know of parents who struggle with this in children. You may know of the harm and, and, and the horrors uh, of all of this. Drugs are highly, spectacularly addictive. Um, to put them in the same category as alcohol and cigarettes, which are available, a bad idea, but yeah, you can buy them if you want to and no one's really going to stop you. Um, it's disingenuous. Um, they are unbelievably uh, addictive. Families are rendered apart uh, and there's an emotional and economic cost which is massive. The real, real human lives are at stake. The third big problem is that pill testing actually hardly makes a difference. Um, the first uh, trial of pill testing was done at Groovin in the Moo, which was a Canberra festival last year, and they had drugs there like MDMA, speed, ketamine and cocaine, 
all subject to failed tests. And one man was even told that his drug had been linked to several deaths in Melbourne. But of course, they were doing a study as part of this trial. And they found that 58% of those who had their drug tested said that they would still take it. They found that 12%, so up to 70% now, said that they would still take them, but maybe take a bit less. 5% said that they might switch to a different drug. We're up to 75% who would still take drugs. Um, only 18% at Groovin in the Move said that they would not use the drugs that failed the test at all. Um, that's very telling. They're going to do it anyway. You see, there's two bigger problems, two ideological problems, which are, are much more than that, which are much greater than that. And the first one is this. Um, do you know, it is becoming unfashionable increasingly in more and more areas to call human behavior wrong and just to make that call. Secondly, people are rebelling more and more against the notion that we should bear full and complete responsibility for our own behavior. What do I mean? Well, if we go to the idea of not being willing to call certain human behaviors wrong, the cultural shift I described there is one that changes the way we feel and think about what proceeds out of the human heart. Um, you know, if we don't any longer believe that proceed, that which proceeds out of the human heart proceeds out of a place that is primarily wicked and corrupt, uh, if we continue to deny that human behavior and desire and inclination uh, comes from a place that is corrupted, so we will continue not to believe that actions themselves come from wrongdoing. Um, you know, this is why self-expression is so celebrated in our society. That which comes from the self, that which is an expression of the self, is good. And that's becoming almost you know, the one-hit-wonder argument, as if to say, well, uh, it doesn't matter what it looks like. If it's self-expression, then it needs to be facilitated, or, 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 or at worst, you know, we need to try and help people to do it better. Um, and we saw that all across the sphere of, of sexual ethics in the last several decades, but it also appears in so many other places. And you know, young people who go to festivals, Young people who uh, partake in these sort of partying-like atmospheres, what are they doing? They're expressing themselves. Uh, if the drugs are a part of that, what are they doing? Well, they're undertaking a project of self-expression. Are we going to call that wrong? Well, you know, the means by which civil authorities declare something to be wrong is the law. The making of the law and the enforcement of the law. And the call here is not to enforce the law to arrest drug takers, people who possess drugs but instead to test those drugs and give them back. Not to have the law as a symbol that yes, this is wrong. But also, um, this, is, uh, this is an easy sort of target for this kind of thinking because it's not like theft, it's not like murder, it's not something that is so obviously wicked. Uh, this is something that you can say, well, is it really that wrong to pop a pill, to have a bit of a good time? And a lot of people who are talking about this probably popped a pill or two in the 60s and 70s uh, in their parties. And so probably, you know, whatever, aren't that willing to call it out. And so this is one of those issues at the fringe that's very easy for this kind of thinking to creep in. These people just need help. They're not doing wrong. We need to give them more information to make better decisions because their decisions and that which is coming out of them isn't bad. Well, that's not Christian. It isn't. And this is something I think that our society will more and more rebel against, even in the church itself, as we repeat the words of Christ. And in fact, the words of Christ which reflect the teaching of the whole of the Bible, which is this, what comes out of a person 
is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these evil things come from within and they defile a person. You know, how you think about the condition of the human heart, what lies within, the identity, if you like, we're calling it now, how you think about that makes a huge difference, a huge difference to how you think about so many things, even including this. Let me quickly mention what is the second big idea that is feeding into this debate. And that is the one whereby people are rebelling against the idea of bearing full and total responsibility for their behavior, for wrong behavior. Let me quote to you what Tim Harvey said, who was a spokesman for the Rainbow Serpent Festival in Melbourne. This is a festival where stacks of people went to hospital, as usual, a whole bunch of dozens, I think, were arrested for drug possession and sale and things like that. He says this on ABC Radio, we are a microcosm of what is going on in the public and the broader community faces the same challenges that we do. I think the issue has been created by 30 years of failed drug policy and we are waiting on the government to fix that. Okay, so what he's saying is the failed drug policies are the fact that drugs are criminal. Uh, whose fault is it, he says? Well, it's clearly not the fault of the people in hospital. It's not the fault of the people that were arrested for possessing drugs. It's the fault of the government because the government has failed drug policy. This idea where we have to defray responsibility to some degree for our actions, that we're primarily victims, not primarily perpetrators, uh, and that there needs to be some entity to shield us from the consequences of our actions, whether that's the government, uh, to test the pills and give us better choices and, and help us to, to you know, experiment and do wrong behavior the right way, if that were possible. Uh, we need someone to take that responsibility away. Now, obviously, I don't believe this is going to work, but here's the more important point. A victim mindset is spiritually destructive. It is spiritually destructive because absolutely key to, uh, to, absolutely key to um, Christianity is repentance. You know, you need to cross the threshold of repentance to receive Christ. The idea that actually you are responsible for everything you've ever done and you need to bear and face the weight of that. And you know, it is God who revives the spirit of the contrite one, who lifts that person up, having crossed that threshold and turned to him in faith. Without repentance, without responsibility, the Christian faith makes no sense. And it is spiritually destructive to deny those things that channel us to repentance, the acknowledgement of wrong. This was the revelation that Bindi Kolchoka had. Uh, she's uh, one of the women who uh, took... Andrew Bolt to the federal court uh, because he published an article questioning how some people can identify as Aboriginal when they're white. Uh, and so she and I think it was nine people in total uh, started a lawsuit against him under Section 18C of the Racial Discrimination Act because they've been offended on the basis of their racial identity. Um, and uh, they took him to court and they won. And you know, Bindi uh, afterwards, uh, some time afterwards, recently renounced what she did. She renounced the worldview that she had at the time. Uh, and she's converted to Christ. Uh, and I mentioned that on The Truth of It uh, last, uh, last year. And she uh, appeared on Andrew Bolt's program and she pointed out that she was living in a victim world where actually evil and oppression were elsewhere. Other people were responsible for everything that she suffered. And she pointed out that Christianity doesn't have a victim mentality. Actually, part of Christianity is the assumption of responsibility. 
And of course she is referring to repentance. It is crucial. But you know, it's hard to get away from the fact that as we look at what's going on here, there is a really serious problem. If these are just massive drug-taking festivals, um, the sad thing is, you know, I wonder if any of those songs that were sung or played at those festivals was, I can't get no satisfaction because I try and I try and I try. This is the cracks emerging in a sick society and I fear a sick generation of young people who are searching in all the wrong places. Ah, so close. Uh, third up on the agenda today is the heat wave in Australia. I'm going to be careful what I say here because I know it's a contested area, but I think that there are some principles because every time that there's extreme heat or extreme weather, hurricanes or cold or something else, uh, the issue of climate change comes up. And, and certainly in Australia at the moment, um, we're seeing some significant uh, events in Adelaide. Uh, the temperature record of all time was broken when it hit 46.2 degrees Celsius, a tenth of a degree higher than the record in 1939 and records have been going for 130 years. Now that is hot. Um, and also in Canberra, we had our longest run of days above 40, four in a row. I was here, it was hot. Uh, and that was Canberra's worst heat wave since 1939. Um, every time events like these occur, as I said, we get this debate about climate change. And you know, in, in 2006, um, I was studying a degree, a science degree in Brisbane and I got very, very interested in this and I read a number of conflicting papers arguing different corners and there wasn't a lot of scepticism at that time, um, but, so, but I did manage to find some stuff. I also read the UN's own information uh, put out by the ICCPR, some of the stuff, the documents they create are massive, um, and I'll spare the details. But a few things really stood out to me. Uh, and one was that, that the challenge of, if, if this is what we want, if we want to forestall two degrees of warming, um, what do we have to do to achieve that specific end? So let's not talk in abstract terms about, well, let's just, you know, uh, introduce renewable energies, let's pay money for this, let's shut down that. No, no. What do we have to do uh, in economic terms uh, to actually achieve a particular change, say two degrees, one degree, whatever? There's a guy called Bjorn Lomborg who's actually done the work on that. Uh, and the answer is, look, at the end of the day, it's not really possible. Um, it's just not really possible. Even if you take the figures of the ICCPR, you take the most alarming figures about uh, the impact of the human uh, race on, on the climate, and I don't honestly ultimately know the answer to that, how much we impact it. It could be a little bit, it could be a tiny bit, I don't know, and people um, are varied in their position on that. But even if you take those figures, uh, I remember doing some back of the napkin calculations with a set of figures I had in 2006, and uh, it showed that if you wiped out a third of the planet, um, you would then achieve your sort of one degree, I think it was, in a hundred years uh, of, of forestalling of warming. So there's a real challenge here, uh, which is, well, can we actually really be climate controllers to the degree that we want to be? Um, I can't see a way, uh, a, a scenario under which we can be. And so I have to ask myself the question, well, what's going on? I mean, I confess I never really understood uh, why uh, there was so much uh, uh, heat and argument around this stuff. Um, I can't understand that. But I can understand an argument that says we should be more sustainable and more responsible. That's a different point. Um, and that's a good point. 
And I can understand these things, not just because I got my head involved in far too many numbers for my own good and read too many reports uh, and did my head in on it, not just for that reason, but it's interesting. So often when you do these things, uh, you actually find out that there was a, a timeless truth of Scripture which was there all along, which told you the answers. And I'm going to read just a couple. You know, in Genesis chapter 8, this is what God says. It's part of the Noahic covenant, it's called. It says, the Lord said, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. I find that very interesting. While the earth remains, the Lord says in his heart, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And this tells me something. It tells me that the human race does have a tendency to get too big for its boots. That's probably the story of Romans 1, actually. To think that we can control more than we really can. To think that we are godlike when we are not. Um, and the truth is this. Those ultimate questions, seed time, harvest, cold, heat, summer, winter, those seasonal variations which cause the earth to provide for us, the, 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 those top-level questions about the atmosphere and about climate and so forth, they're above our pay grade, is the honest truth. Um, God has promised in His sovereign power that He will look after those things. And I say, well, just as well, because I think we've got Buckley's chance of really impacting in degrees Celsius terms what's going on. That doesn't mean that seven billion people have no impact. Um, that doesn't mean that uh, there's nothing we can do, because I actually think that um, Scripture gives us some direction on that as well. Uh, you can read in Genesis, and it starts out at the beginning by saying, uh, you know, uh, God says to man and woman, he says, you know, have dominion over the earth and subdue it. Uh, for I have given you every seed-bearing tree and plant and herb for, for food, etc. He's saying, look, he's saying, he's saying, have dominion, subdue the earth, uh, uh, take from the earth. Uh, he's saying there's food, there's things given for you for your use. That's the whole point. That's the whole uh, agenda here. I'm providing for you. And in the same, you know, the very next breath, he's saying, so be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The promise is there is one of provision. However, read on a few verses and, of course, you get what, we, what I might call a balancing uh, uh, issue, which is that, you know, uh, they were, man and woman were put in the garden and they were told to tend it and to keep it. Well, why? Well, obviously, if you just eat it all and you don't replant anything and you don't prune it and you don't look after it, you don't leave that bit for later, um, you're not going to get what you need. Uh, that is unsustainable. That's pillaging the earth. Uh, that's being irresponsible. Uh, and that's wrong. And so there is a balancing act to be had here to say, look, there's resources given. It's not wrong to take some things out of the ground. It's not wrong to cut down a tree. It's not wrong to eat that fruit. It's not wrong to cultivate that land. It's not wrong in and of itself to do those things. Uh, but I can definitely see the argument and I can see the wisdom in saying, but it is wrong uh, to pillage. It is wrong not to have a sustainable mindset about these things. It is wrong not to ensure that the earth can continue to supply. Otherwise, God does allow areas to become desolate. He does allow... Uh, the consequences of that pillaging to take their full effect. And there's areas in the, there's statements in the Old Testament to that effect where land is laid desolate uh, by uh, pillaging uh, of the natural resources. Um, but, you know, 
I think that's a great perspective to have on these things. And as far as I can tell, it's, it is a biblical perspective. But it's, I didn't know those scriptures when I was looking at science and delving into reports and thinking the sort of similar things for myself. Um, but it's interesting that so often when you do that, the two marry up. Uh, in fact, I would say always. Um, and many will think that I'm something of a troglodyte, something of a fundamentalist for taking my beliefs uh, on such matters from, from these sources. Uh, but I don't really care um, because uh, both pathways have married together just fine. Uh, and I got fiercely criticized for saying this once before, but I'm saying it again because I find that usually that means it's something that needs to be said. Uh, because perhaps uh, we've run the risk of getting a bit too big for our boots, going above our pay grade and saying we are sovereign over a little bit more than we really are. We're not gods, we are man and woman, we're humans, we're creatures. Uh, and we've been given a responsibility, but we don't have full control. I'm going to get it one day. Um, look, the next story is that of photographer Jason Tay. Uh, Jason Tay uh, was the wedding photographer in Perth uh, who had a, uh, a lesbian couple come to him and ask him to take their photos. He's a very well-respected photographer. He was actually the uh, runner-up in the International Wedding Photographer of the Year Awards. Um, and he's got an amazing portfolio. Uh, but he has a, he's a Christian man, and he's, he's overtly and solidly and clearly Christian in the way that he does his business. But he had a lesbian couple approach him and ask him to take photos of their family. They have children. Uh, and he said, yes, he would do that. But, you know, as he reflected on this situation, he thought, actually, if I was them, I'd want to know. I'd want to know uh, that their photographer has something of a conflict of belief. And so he wrote them a kind note just saying, look, I want you to know something. I want you to know that I am a Christian. I want you to know that my beliefs are Christian on these issues. Um, and, uh, and, and if you'd be more comfortable with another photographer, I wouldn't be offended if you chose to do that. But equally, I am happy to take these pictures. I paraphrase, but I couldn't actually be as nice as he was, to be perfectly honest. Um, and he, um, he said that. Uh, and, you know, thinking genuinely... Uh, that this was the right thing to do, and they turned around and sued him. They sued him under the West Australian uh, Anti-Discrimination Act, uh, and they took him to the Equal Opportunity Commission. Uh, they asked him to apologise for what he did, and of course Jason didn't feel like he could make an apology for simply stating his beliefs, um, and so that was then referred to the State Administrative Tribunal. Now, the reason I raise this case is not because it's happened, we've talked about that when it did, but because the complainant has dropped the case. Uh, and so that's now fallen by the wayside and Jason Tay is free to continue to run his photography business in peace um, because, you know, he got some good legal support. Uh, and this is the tragedy of these things. The tragedy of these things is they have a chilling effect. The process after many months is very burdensome on the person. Uh, it is fear and intimidation. And the fact that the Equal Opportunity Commission would even accept the complaint and then allow it to be referred to the State Administrative Tribunal for what? Remember that all Jason did was he merely stated his beliefs. That's all he did. He didn't decline service. Uh, he didn't do anything more than that. And so he found himself embroiled in this legal process, which has now been dropped. So we actually don't know what the outcome of that would have been. Um, you know, it's a great injustice and it highlights the problems with the anti-discrimination regimes, which we're seeing more and more across the nation. 
Um, and I want to note this, the complaints uh, that are being made uh, are getting more aggressive. <coughs> They're getting more aggressive because it's no longer just overt acts of you know, declining service, for example, and other things that are being pursued. But we've seen cases where someone has brought a complaint, uh, not because they themselves are gay, but on behalf of others who are gay. So they don't even possess the protected attribute. And in that case, the commission in question accepted the complaint. Uh, we've seen cases like this, where someone hasn't actually really done anything other than state their beliefs, and that has got them embroiled in legal controversy, and the complaint's been accepted and even referred up. But also we saw the case of White Magazine a little while ago where they didn't do anything at all. They didn't even state their beliefs. For the crime of remaining silent, White Magazine was hounded out of business by activists. They received threats to their personal safety. Sponsors pulled out of the magazine to the extent that the whole enterprise became economically unviable. Why is this happening? Well, do you know, it's happening because if you read carefully through Romans 1, and I believe we're in a Romans 1 society, I think that's fairly uncontroversial to people who know their Bibles, um, you will see that you know, in this society, nothing less than approval will do. It's not enough to be silent. It's not enough to continue to state your aberrant beliefs. You must approve, and nothing less than that will be given. And I suspect we'll continue to see these matters, but I suspect that these matters will stop so long as they continue to be well-resourced, or so long as they continue to get public attention in the immediate term. I don't know how long that'll continue for, but this is a case of bullying, it's a case of coercion, it's a case of silencing dissent and demanding approval. That's really what's going on. But wonderful news for Jason, that he can get on with his life and he can get on with his business, uh, and we wish him Godspeed. The final story which uh, I'll mention is actually a pretty good news story. Uh, it's the story of Astia Bibi. And those of you who are regular viewers of ACL's material, you'll know that we've been advocating for Astia for some time. She's a Pakistani Christian woman who some eight plus years ago was convicted of blasphemy. Um, and she, because she said to a, a, a group of Muslim women, she said words to the effect of, my Christ died for me. What has Muhammad done for you. She was horrifically abused, she was beaten, uh, and two of her political champions throughout that course, really senior politicians, were assassinated, uh, and so it goes on. Um, she was finally exonerated by Pakistan's Supreme Court at the end of last year, but of course that precipitated massive riots, um, and then she had to be put under house arrest, or she could be in a secure location, uh, and guarded by the Pakistani military, and then to placate the extremists, Imran Khan's government allowed them to lodge an appeal against her acquittal, even though that was the highest court in Pakistan, uh, and put her on a no-fly list so she could not escape the country. Her lawyer did escape the country in fear of her life, went to the, in fear of his life, went to the Netherlands. Um, and the good news is that that petition against her acquittal that was filed by the extremists was dismissed by Pakistan's Supreme Court uh, on Tuesday. Uh, that's great news, but of course the riots and the unrest have blown up already. Um, some of those leading that movement have been imprisoned, which is great news and shows the Pakistani government's willingness to try and get this thing to go away a little bit and to, to get justice. Uh, but um, this happened a couple of days after Asya Bibi's daughters were reported to have arrived safely in Canada, where they've been granted asylum. 
And uh, that's great news. And Asya has been uh, protected by Pakistani Supreme Court security forces since then. Uh, and she says that she'll be leaving the country soon. Um, she talks to her daughters every day. And the chairman of the British Pakistani Christian Association, Wilson Chowdhury, agreed that there was more work to be done to protect Christians in Pakistan. He says this, he says, Asya Bibi has always been innocent. And it's a blight on Pakistan that it took almost 10 years to come to this decision to free her. Her freedom is a massive step in the advancement of equality and justice in Pakistan. Its draconian blasphemy laws must be abrogated speedily to prevent this ever happening again. Now, Wilson Chowdhury and the British Pakistani Christian Association did a lot in the cause of Asya over the last 10 years. A lot. Um, and, you know, she's not the only uh, victim of blasphemy laws in Pakistan. Uh, there are, I think, roughly 40 others at the moment, but there's also thousands of Christians living in slave-like conditions across Pakistan because they are highly, highly persecuted. Why did all this happen? It all happened because she said those words, my Christ died for me. What has Muhammad done for you? Wonderful words, true words. And you know, I once thought as I looked at these issues of freedom of religion and freedom of speech, and especially as they're speaking of Jason Tay just before, getting a little more and more in our country as well. Uh, I once thought that it was the cause of freedom that was the solution to this, these things. We need freedom of speech. We need freedom of religion. Um, and there's some truth in that still, but there's something more fundamental than that. When Wilson was telling the story of Asya at ACL's uh, forum recently, um, it struck me that there's so many similarities between blasphemy cases in Pakistan uh, and discrimination cases in Australia. Um, some will laugh at that, but I mean things like this. I mean things like the hot indignation and anger and the mob anger that is directed against the people who are either prosecuted for blasphemy or prosecuted for hate speech in Australia or prosecuted for saying the wrong thing, as Jason Tay was, or prosecuted for something like that or using the wrong pronouns for a transgender person. It struck me that the loss of due process was common as well. You know, uh, due process goes out the window. They stop observing the rule of law because they must get this person who has aberrant views. I saw such similarity, it really hit me because I've been up close with a lot of the cases here in Australia um, that I speak of. And you know what struck me? It's not the cause of freedom that's primary. It's the cause of truth. Because the common theme here is that in each case, someone speaks the truth, believes the truth. Those blasphemy laws, you can bet, operate primarily against Christians primarily against truth-tellers, primarily against statements like Asya's. Vilification, anti-discrimination laws, uh, they operate primarily against those who believe the truth about marriage, the truth about gender, the truth about sexuality, the truth about family. It's the truth that people target. It's the truth that these laws go after. And so, you know, the solution is not so much the cause of freedom. Yes, that's an important thing. But the solution is more primarily the cause of truth. And I would say this, you know, if we want to stand against these trends, we must continue to speak the truth. We must speak the truth boldly. We must speak it publicly. And we mustn't apologize for doing that. Because if we don't, we'll be pushed further and further into the corner where we can no longer speak that truth anymore. Uh, and the truth is a wonderful thing. That statement by Asya obviously pricked the conscience of those to whom she was speaking, and who knows how it's been used. And it's a statement that's been repeated around the world for a decade.
whilst she was in solitary confinement, refusing to denounce Christ every day of every year of that imprisonment, which she could have done at any time and walked free. She is a remarkable lady. And may we learn something from her example. Let me just say quickly too, I do want to say that um, the Office of Foreign Minister Maurice Payne, the Office of Home Affairs Minister Peter Dutton, throughout this process have been helpful, informative. Uh, we haven't said a lot about it for a little while now because that was the request that was made to me. Uh, but they have been very good in this process and Australia was not a bystander uh, as this was being sorted out. Neither was Australia a bystander as safe haven for Asia and her family was being sorted and we trust all going well and we pray for this and I encourage us all to pray for this that in the next few days uh, Asia, her husband, her guardian, his family and her daughters will all be safe and well in a country where they are free and a fitting end to a decade of persecution. That was the truth of it. Thanks for listening again. I'm Martin Isles.